We're about to get started, and, and Mark, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we are just walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday morning. This morning we made our way to the text, uh, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Uh, we're going to read that together uh, as we start out, and I just want to encourage you to remember a few things as we read God's Word together today, that this is the Word of God. First and foremost, this is the Word of God. So I ask you this morning, do you believe that God can speak to you from this text, from this passage of Scripture? Do you believe that He can speak to you personally? Do you believe that He can speak to us corporately? Do you believe that God's Word is powerful? Do you believe that today? And I would just encourage you to remind yourself in a fresh way, cry out to God. If He does not, uh, if he does not bear witness to His Word today, we waste our time. Uh, this is why we gather. We gather to hear from God to worship. God. And so I just encourage you to just put all your trust and your hope in the living God using His Word to speak to us. He's been faithfully doing this for 2,000 years at least. Okay, This is how He leads His church. So let's read Mark chapter 4. We're starting verse 35 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter together. I remind you that this is the Word of God. Read this with me. Verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is the word of God. Let's pray together before we get started. Father, we gather together in Your name. And we just plead for mercy today, Lord, that You would come and that You would graciously meet with us. God, we thank You so much that You are a God who's revealed Himself. And we have these words, Lord. You didn't have to give us Your words, but You revealed Yourself to us in this book. And we just proclaim it back to You that all Scripture is Your breath, Lord. And we want to hear it hot breath from Your mouth, Lord. We want to hear from You. We want to know You. And we, we want to know You, Lord Jesus, in all Your glory and all Your majesty. And we ask, Lord, that by Your Holy Spirit, You bear witness to Your Word today. Help us to feel the weight of Your majesty, Lord Jesus. Help us to feel the weight of Your Word. Lord, turn our eyes off of the things of this world and help us to behold You, Lord Jesus, in all Your glory and all Your splendor. Turn our eyes toward You this morning, Lord. We pray, God, we ask for Your help. God, I ask for Your help, Lord, as I teach Your Word. God, I pray that You would help me to teach it accurately, faithfully, Lord. And God, I pray that You would give me a measure of power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that You would be glorified in all things. And I ask, Lord, that You would help us to hear Your Word. We just confess, Lord Jesus, that we can't do anything apart from You. And so as your people, Lord, as your servants, as your son and daughters, we just ask you to speak to us, Lord. Speak to us from your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay. I want to take a little bit of time reviewing the book of Mark before we jump into this text. 
just to line some things out. Uh, this will kind of catch everybody up if you haven't been here in the past few weeks. And also, I just want to kind of let you see a theme that's moving through this gospel. So we're about to do that together. Our central theme in this passage today can be summed up in that question of the last verse we read in Mark chapter 4. It's this question that the disciples ask one another when they say, Who then is this? And they basically are looking around and they're saying, who is Jesus? Jesus is standing there, but something has just hit them that they, they realize that they didn't know everything about Jesus. So our central question is to ask and to answer, who then is Jesus? Uh, life and death depend on how you answer that question. Who is Jesus? Who then is this? So Mark, like an expert storyteller, he starts this gospel off revealing to us who Jesus is. Uh, and as this gospel progresses, you just get snapshot after snapshot, a revelation of, of who Jesus is and what He's done. The disciples at this point in this gospel, they're having their eyes open, but it's really slow. And they know that something's going on with Jesus, but they don't know exactly how to explain it yet. Their eyes are slowly being opened. As we followed along in this gospel, Mark has consistently and clearly revealed clearly who Jesus is. So think about this. So we have our text today, and I just want to invite you to turn back to Mark chapter 1. We're going to just go through a few uh, texts, and we're going to ask this question, who is Jesus according to Mark so far? Who is Jesus according to Mark so far? First verse of this gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, right off the bat, no wasting time, no pulling punches. Mark says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of God. Two verses later, Mark chapter 1, verse 3, we find out that Jesus is the Yahweh who's come to earth. John came to prepare the way for the Lord. John prepared the way for Jesus. Thus, Jesus is the Lord. He's the Yahweh come to earth. Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Jesus has the authority to dispense the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus is the one whom the Father announces from heaven. God says about Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verse 25. Jesus commands demons, and demons must obey Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Jesus demonstrates His authority over leprosy. He heals a leper with a word. Okay? Mark chapter 2, verse 5, starts to get real interesting when Jesus announces to this paralytic man and He says, your sins are forgiven. The crowds respond with a charge of blasphemy that only God can forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus demonstrates His authority over paralysis. He heals a paralytic with a word of His mouth. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, Jesus announces Himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. He basically says that He is the Master of God's holy day. And He announces Himself to be the end of the Sabbath. The fulfillment of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus announces that He is the one who has come to chain up Satan like a lapdog and plunder his possessions. This is Jesus. Okay? This is Jesus according to Mark. And I want to ask you a question. Do you know your Savior? Is your knowledge of Jesus exalted? Do you know Jesus as He's revealed on the pages of Scripture? Know your Savior. Okay? 
Today we get just another glimpse of who Jesus is as He's unveiled in a fresh way. The past couple of weeks we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And in verse 35, our text today, Mark switches from parables and we're about to enter into a section of miracles. And that'll take us all the way to the end of chapter 5. Today is the first of four miracles that we're about to cover in the next few weeks. Today we see Jesus do something very unique. Today we see Jesus, a lot of people call this a nature miracle. Okay, We're about to see Jesus do something very unique and He's going to demonstrate His authority over creation. This miracle reveals the power of Jesus in a very unique way. This miracle strikes the mind. It'll hurt the brain. Okay? Because this miracle confronts a rationalistic, scientific worldview. Okay? So here's what I'm going to tell you on the front end. The infallible Word of God really does teach that Jesus Christ stopped a hurricane with three words from His mouth. This is not a fairy tale. This really happened. Okay? And this slams right up against a rationalistic, scientific worldview. The Jesus of the Scriptures is supernatural. Okay? So beware of rationalism before we even get started today. Let's begin with our text in verse 35. Verse 35 says this, On that day, when the evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Mark references that day. And in Mark chapter 4, you have a record, a record of a one long day in the life of Jesus. Starting in verse 1, He's teaching great crowds and He teaches them in parables all day long. And as that day closes, you have a reference to evening coming. And this day closes, Jesus announces to His disciples that they're about to go to the other side. At this point, they're at uh, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus wants to take it to the eastern shore. I'll give you just a, fr- a few reasons to think about why Jesus wanted to take this group of men to the other side. Okay, just three. First reason, Jesus is in obvious need of rest. He's been ministering all day long. And in the mind of Jesus, this would be a good opportunity to get some sleep while they journey to the other side. You're going to see that play out in just a moment. Second reason, Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says that He came out for a mission, for a purpose, that He must preach the gospel in other towns. Okay? And so the second reason why Jesus uh, desires to go to the other side is very simple. He desires to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the other side where it has not reached yet. And you'll see this next week as, as Ryan dives into this text. The other side, the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee is far more pagan than the western shore. One commentator called it a realm where pig farming is tolerated and demons gather in masses. These people needed the gospel and Jesus desired to take it to them. This was a dark region. Third reason, last reason. Jesus desired to go to the other side because He desired to test the faith of His disciples. And we're going to see very shortly that Jesus leads His disciples right slam into a storm. And He desires to test their faith. And we're going to see that play out. It's important. What I want you to see here before we move past verse 35 is it's important to see that Jesus originates this plan. This plan is Jesus' plan. Just as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for temptation, Jesus is about to lead His disciples into a storm for testing. 
the plan to go to the other side was Jesus' plan. But even more than that, it's actually a promise. Look at your text. Jesus does not say to His disciples, let's go out into the middle of the sea and drown. Okay? Jesus says, let us, plural, go to the other side. This is His Word. This is the Master's Word. This is His promise to His disciples. And that's going to be important for you to remember in just a few verses to tie this together. Verse 36 says this, And leaving the crowd, they took Him with them in the boat, just as He was, and other boats were with Him. Only Mark records that detail, that other boats were with Jesus that day. So there was at least three, maybe more, other boats with Christ. The reference to other boats here probably tells us that there were a lot more than the twelve that were with Jesus this day as they head from one shore to the next. Uh, Most commentators tell us that fishing boats during this time period, they would have held about 15 to 20 people. So other boats holding about 15 to 20 people, that would give you some idea about how many people we're talking about that are with Jesus on this day. Now think through this for a minute. As they leave the shore that day, the twelve are with the boat, uh, are in the boat with Jesus. The twelve. So think about this. Think of how many fishermen would have been in that boat on that day. Four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, at least four of the twelve, would have been lifelong career fishermen. Expert sailors. They would have spent many, many, many hours on this very sea, the Sea of Galilee. They weren't rookies. Okay, They were experienced sailors. So when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, they heard that as like, that's like our morning commute. It was nothing to them. It was normal and regular for them to go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. So the context is that it's been a long day. In the ministry of Jesus, it's getting dark. Jesus desires to go to the other side. The sea is calm. They all jump in these boats and they head out. It's about a, it would have been about a five-mile trip across the Sea of Galilee, but we find out that something unexpected was very soon to happen. Verse 37 says this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. I'll give you some quick background on the Sea of Galilee. Very prone to sudden sudden storms erupting like this. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And I mean the lowest below sea level. The only thing lower is the Dead Sea, but it's not a freshwater lake because it's got salt in it. So lowest freshwater lake in the world. And there's mountains that surround it. So it's basically like this huge bowl And you have cold air from the mountains and warm air from the sea. And they collide together and they produce powerful thunderstorms. Even today, this lake has a reputation for these storms. And this is what we find break out here in verse 37. A great windstorm arose. It suddenly popped on the scene. All right, this is good. This is the first of three times this Greek word is used. And this is good. Mark uses a Greek word here. It's called megal. To describe this storm. And we get our word mega from that word. So in Mark's mind. Mark's point here is that this is not a normal thunderstorm. This is a mega storm. A huge violent windstorm. Think hurricane force winds. This is what he's trying to describe to you in this passage. In Matthew's account of this same story. Where Jesus calms the storm on Galilee Sea. Matthew uses the word seismos to describe the storm. We get our word seismic from that word. That's how we measure when the earth shakes, when there's earthquakes. We call it seismic. 
Okay, so I'm so we're supposed to get this vivid description in God's word of the strength of this storm. This is a powerful, furious, violent, hard hitting, earth moving thunderstorm, a mega storm. So we have a description here that the wind blew so hard that night that the waves grew so tall that they began to break into the side of the boat that Jesus and the disciples are in. So I want you to try to go there in your mind. Try to picture yourself here. Can you imagine the fear of the disciples in that moment? It's pitch black dark and a thunderstorm just unleashes, a powerful, furious thunderstorm unleashes on this lake that you're on. The waves start crashing in and the boat that you're in starts to fill up with water. Your feet get wet and you're thinking in your mind, I'm done. I'm about to be done. Can you imagine the fear? Pitch black dark. Except when lightning lights up the sky, the wind is blowing so hard that it sounds like a freight train. And the, and the, and the waves that they're crashing in the sea sounds like Niagara Falls. And then the boat starts to fill with water. The fact that professional fishermen began to fear for their life should tell you how powerful and violent that this storm was. They began to call out that we are perishing. They all knew that given the strength of this storm, that if this boat sunk, they were done. It was sayonara, and everybody on board was going to die. Listen to John Bloom describe this, uh, this scenario. He says, open quote, These were seasoned boatmen, and they knew a man-eater when they saw it. This storm had opened its mouth to swallow them all into the abyss. Close quote. That's a vivid description. Can you imagine how desperate these men began to feel? Can you imagine this? What do you think they were doing in those moments in your mind as the waves started crashing in? What do you think they were doing? Maybe they were frantically trying to bail out the water that was in the boat. Maybe some of the fishermen, maybe they were trying to steer the boat into the direction of the waves because if they knew if one hit them directly in the side that it was going to roll the boat over. So maybe they were trying to frantically row this thing and steer this boat. And you know what else they were doing? While they were doing all that, they were praying and calling out to God. God, would you help us? God, save us. So they're praying. They're bailing out water. And they're trying to steer this boat. And water's beginning to fill this boat. And then we have in verse 38. Listen to this. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. So you have a contrast to the frantic panic of these disciples. And Jesus is asleep. It could have said that he was just chilling out in the back, okay? But he is fast asleep in the back of the boat. So I think there are at least two reasons why Mark shows that Jesus is sleeping in this text. The first reason is that Jesus, the fact that he's sleeping demonstrates that Jesus' trust is in God. The ability to sleep in danger, the ability to sleep in trials is evidence of trust in God. Listen to Psalm 4 verse 8. In peace, I both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Jesus is the perfect picture of that verse. In peace, he lied down and slept. But I believe there's a second reason why Mark tells us that Jesus is sleeping in this story. This is the only reference to Jesus sleeping in the entire Gospels. Why did he put it here? Why do we have this reference here? Why not any other day in the life of Jesus? So think about this. Jesus has been ministering all day to these crowds. Okay? The fact that he is sleeping here showed you that Jesus is exhausted and that he needed rest. So Mark wants to show us the humanity 
of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully man. He's fully man, perfectly human. Jesus was sinless, but He had a body that got tired and needed rest. I believe that's what Mark is doing in the story. And I think you'll see why here in just a minute. Verse 38 continues with this phrase. And they awoke Him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So just a quick thought. Notice that the disciples woke Him up. And the reason that that's really remarkable is because there's like a freight train of wind happening all around Him. And there's like Niagara Falls waves crashing in all over Him. And none of that woke Him up, but the disciples' voice woke Him up. And one commentator said, it's like a mother who wakes at the slightest movement of her infant child. This is, a, this is a picture of the mercy and love of Jesus Christ for His disciples. So when the, when the disciples woke Him, they would have been in absolute panic. This was a cry of panic. Can you picture this chaotic scene in your mind? Okay? They had to scream at Him loud enough to where He could hear them through the wind and through the waves. They, this was a panic, a scream. And notice how they, how they address Him. They call Him Teacher. You see that in verse 38? Now Matthew and Luke both record the same story. In Matthew, the disciples call Him Lord. And in Luke, the disciples call Jesus Master. So you have three different things that they call Jesus in this story. Master, Teacher, and Lord. Okay? And the, you know, the intellectual, rebellious, flaming atheist says, See, I told you the Bible has errors in it. It can't even get his story straight. The three Gospels says three different things. I told you the Bible is full of errors. But this is nonsense. Listen, listen to the context of this story. This is a thunderstorm. They're about to die. There's at least 12 of them in this boat. And they're screaming to Jesus. And one screams teacher. And one screams Lord. And one screams master. And then they do it all and all over again. This was not an order that they said, Peter, you go wake him up and make sure you get the wording right. They're screaming for their lives to Jesus. Okay? Notice that they actually rebuked Jesus in verse 38. They basically said, Jesus, we're dying and you don't even care. Listen to R.C. Sproul here. I love this quote. He says, how typical of the creature to rebuke the Creator. How typical of the servant to sass mouth the Master. I like that. So the disciples were clearly out of line in verse 38. They were rebuking Jesus in their panic. And Sinclair Ferguson writes this. They, they, they charge Jesus with Jesus you don't even care. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is the cruelest thing that they could have said about Jesus. That he didn't care. He, Ferguson says, the very reason that Jesus is in the boat is because he cares. The very reason that Jesus is in the world is because he cares. And the very reason that Jesus was on his way to the cross was because he cares. This is a cruel question by the disciples, and they were out of place here. So just before we move on, have you wondered, ever wondered in your life why they woke Him up? Why did they wake Jesus up that was asleep in the back of the boat? They did not expect Him to do what He was about to do. That's not why they woke Him up, so why did they wake Him up? I think that they had seen Jesus do unusual miracles. They had seen Jesus do miraculous healings and they knew that Jesus had a close relationship with God the Father. They heard God the Father's voice 
come down from heaven, that's the one that pleases me. And I believe that they knew that Jesus had an inroad with God. And I believe that they were waking Jesus up to pray for them, to ask God to save them from the storm. But they were not expecting Jesus to do what he was about to do. Listen to verse 39. It says this, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. When is the last time that you yelled at a thunderstorm? That happened lately? Is this weird? Is this strange to you that Jesus does this? Jesus speaks to a hurricane like a parent speaks to a child who's out of line and he chastises a thunderstorm, a powerful hurricane force thunderstorm. Here's a quick thought. The word rebuke that's used in this verse is also used in Mark chapter 1, verse 25 as Jesus rebukes a demon. Okay, the same word here. For this reason, many scholars see a veiled reference to Satan in the storm that Jesus rebukes. Now, Satan has no authority in the natural world except as God permits and grants him. If he had complete authority in the natural world, there would be massive uh, traffic pileups every single day on the interstate, massive death every single day. He does not have that. But he does have authority in nature as God permits him to, just like you see in Job chapter 1, as a great windstorm. Satan stirred up a great windstorm and took Job's children. Okay? This could possibly be an example of nature being used as an agent of Satan at God's permission. And if this is true, then this would be, an, this would be Satan trying to prevent Christ from preaching the gospel, from advancing the gospel to the other side, but even more so, it will be an attempt by Satan to try to kill the seed, to try to kill the Christ and his disciples. Perhaps this is why Jesus addresses this storm like a person. The fact that they immediately encounter a demonized man when they show up on the other side, a man with a legion of demons, gives another strong piece of evidence that Satan is behind this storm. So you can test that for yourself, but nevertheless, Jesus does rebuke this storm. He doesn't just speak to it. He chastises it. He rebukes it. So notice what he says to the storm. Jesus speaks two Greek verbs to this megastorm. The first verb is in the present tense and the second verb is in the perfect tense. And this first verb required an immediate action of the storm and the second verb required an ongoing action. And that's a long way to say this, that Jesus basically said, be quiet and stay quiet. Be quiet and stay quiet. He commands this mega storm. Imagine being the disciples that night. How terrified would you have been at this storm? And then picture Jesus standing up and looking out on this raging storm and saying, be quiet and stay quiet. And Mark is very clear as to what happens next in verse 39. And here we go. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Many commentators point out that this was a double miracle. Apparently, when storms break out on a large lake and, and, and they stop, the waves from those storms continue to roll for hours and hours after that storm stops. But Jesus does a double miracle. He stops the wind and immediately stops the waves by His authoritative Word. No incantations. He doesn't pray to God to do this. He doesn't do this in the name of God. No theatrics. No playing around. He just opens His mouth and speaks 
the authoritative word. Immediately, creation recognizes the voice of the Creator. Immediately, the elements remember that this is the Master. And this is a time for us to pause and bow down and worship Christ. This is a, this is a revelation to us of the power of Jesus. And this should blow our minds. It gets even better. Mark uses, remember that word I told you about, mega. Mark uses a vivid word here to describe the response of nature. It was not just a calm. It was a great calm. It was a mega calm. It was not a normal calm. So this should draw a vivid description in your mind that that day on the Sea of Galilee, there was a raging mega storm and the Savior spoke, be quiet and stay quiet and there was a mega calm. So in your mind, you need to think that that sea became a piece of glass. Okay? And I believe that from this description from the Gospels that the, that the disciples in that moment could have looked over the side of the boat and saw their reflection in the water. It was not just a calm. It was a mega calm. So the mega storm instantly became a mega calm. As sudden as it came, it was gone. This is the power that Jesus displays on this night in front of His disciples. The storm had immense power, but Jesus had infinitely more power. So imagine the disciples as they're processing this information. This is not human power. This power that Jesus demonstrated was meant to convey a message about Jesus. In verse 38, Mark has already shown us a picture of the humanity of Christ, but one verse later, this is the only time this happens in the Scriptures. One verse, He's a human. Next verse, He's God in the flesh. Humanity and divinity of Jesus. Boom, boom. One verse sandwiched together. And you see this here. And I believe that Mark intentionally is holding these truths side by side to reveal to us the nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. Jesus is the God-man. I know you've heard that many times. He's the God-man. Fully God and fully man. This sleeping human Jesus is also mighty God in the flesh who calms the storm. He's the God-man. Verse 40 says this, And He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, if we'd be honest, we would probably, in our minds, we would probably think it's appropriate that the disciples were afraid and fearful that they were, in their minds that they were about to drown. And that's how we would think about it. But Jesus does not think about it like this. Because Jesus, when, he, when He's done rebuking the storm, He delivers a word of correction to His disciples about fear and unbelief. So catch this. Jesus expected the disciples to endure the storm with peace and trust, not with panic and unbelief. He expected that of them. That rebuke makes no sense unless He expected that of them. So remember that Jesus had already given them His Word, that we're going to the other side. We, plural, are going to the other side. Imagine Jesus look at them, looking at these disciples that night and basically saying, why didn't you trust Me? I told you where we were going. Why did you not trust Me? And why would you ever doubt My care for you? Can you imagine that conversation? We see Jesus had the power to calm this storm at any moment, but He intended to test the disciples' faith. And by and large, for the most part, the disciples fail this test, though they took a lesson that they would remember for the rest of their lives. The disciples fail by focusing more on the storm than on Christ. More on the storm than the Word of Jesus. More on the storm than the character of Jesus. 
He told them they were going to the other side and they questioned His love and His care for Him. This is a great warning for us. Okay? When is the last time that you were reminded by the Holy Spirit that unbelief and fear in your life is offensive to Jesus? When's the last time you had a reminder of that? I pray that God would wake us up to this truth today. May this passage cause you to fix your mind, not on your problems, but on Jesus Christ, the one with all authority. You need to be reminded that fear and unbelief are offensive to the Savior. He corrects His disciples for this. Listen to the Spurgeon quote. He says, Our unbelief seldom deserves to be reasoned with. Our fears are often intensely silly. We look back on them in shame that we have been so foolish. And our Lord corrected their unbelief because it was unreasonable. So looking at this story, it made no sense to be fearful when you're in the boat with the one who can stop the hurricane with the word of his mouth. Their fear was unreasonable. Listen to verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear. This is awesome. In case you have any doubts what your response would have been like that night if you were in the boat. Mark tells us now that they were, the disciples were filled with great fear. This is the same word as before. Mega fear. Mega storm, mega calm, mega fear. Last time this word is used in this passage. The disciples were an emotional roller coaster that night. And I want you to see this. Make sure you catch this. It's very important for you to understand this passage. They were more afraid after the storm calmed than they were during the storm. Verse 40 shows us that the disciples were afraid of drowning in the storm. But verse 41 shows us that that mega fear struck their hearts as the power of Christ was unveiled to them. The storm produced fear, but Christ produces mega fear. What made them so afraid? Think about this. The storm immediately responded to Jesus' word. I like this Danny Aiken quote. He says, any way you slice it, if you stop a hurricane with a word, you're God. It's just simple to the point. I like that. So, So think about this. If you're these disciples and you see this go down, remember that these men were Jews. They grew up with a worldview that was saturated by the Old Testament. These men knew that only God had the power to do what they just saw Jesus do. The Old Testament reveals that only God has control over the elements. So imagine that you, had, that you were them, these Jewish uh, disciples with Jesus, and you had a couple of these Old Testament verses banging around in your mind, and then you saw what we just read about. Imagine you had a couple of these verses in your mind. Psalm 77. Verse 16, when the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid, and then indeed the deep trembled. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Think of how important that verse would have been to a fisherman, a Jewish fisherman. When the waves rise, O Lord, you still them. Uh, Psalm 93, verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And then this is awesome. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? 
Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is His name and what is His Son's name? Surely you know. Imagine that verse in your mind and you look and you're there in the boat and the Old Testament demands that only God could do what you just saw Jesus do. Can you imagine the fear that you would begin to experience as this thought started to creep in your mind that the man in the boat with you was God Almighty in the flesh. Their response, according to the Scriptures, was mega fear. Terrified. Fear of death is one thing, but it compares nothing with the fear of God. R.C. Sproul writes this, The thing all people fear most is the holiness of God. As soon as God manifests His transcendent majesty, men are reduced to terror. So Jesus, that night, before His disciples, He displays His holiness. He displays His deity. And they, these disciples had no category in their mind to put Jesus in. He was other. He was holy, holy, holy. And from cover to cover, the Bible reveals to us that as the physical presence of God is manifested to men over and over and over again, it unravels their humanity. Think about Isaiah, think about Peter, as they draw near to God. These men cry out, woe is me, I am undone. As these men draw near to God, as they get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, they cry out, depart from me, Lord, depart from me. It causes fear in the human spirit. Mega fear this night on this lake. Could these men have forgotten what they saw that day? Imagine that you saw this. Could you, this would have been an image burned in your mind that you saw the hurricane in a moment. He shut it down. Verse 41. The only thing that they could say is in verse 41 as we close this morning. They say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? In the span of a few moments that night, these disciples saw Jesus lay down and take a nap. And then a moment later, they saw Jesus stand up and display unthinkable power. In the span of two verses this morning, you have seen Jesus display His humanity while sleeping. And you have seen Jesus display His deity as He shuts down a storm with a word of His mouth. Who is this? Jesus is the God-man. Jesus Himself is the Lord. He is the ruler of nature, the Lord of all creation, and the King of the universe. And He shows us this this morning. And life and death hang on you seeing Jesus for who He really is. He's the ruler of nature, the Lord of all creation. So I want to walk into some application of this text this morning. And this is a little bit longer than normal, but I think that there's some really encouraging things here for us to consider as a church. Contrary to many sermons that you may have heard, the main point of this text is not Jesus stilled the storm, so He'll steal the storm in your life. That is not the main point of this text. And it's not even true. Okay? We have no promise from God that we will not have hardship or affliction. So it's not the main point, and it's not even true. You will not have a trouble-free life as a disciple of Jesus. Okay, this approach is backwards because it's saturated with man-centeredness. The main point of this passage is to answer the question, who is this man? 
And this man is Jesus, God in the flesh. This is the main point of this passage, that Jesus demonstrates His greatness and His glory. Okay, That is the main point. Feel the weight of the main point. Secondary points there are to this story. I'll give you at least three to consider. First, the story reminds us that Christ does not exempt His disciples from going into storms. In fact, you see in this passage that it's His idea to take them in the storm. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. God's Word teaches us that storms, trials are essential. They're essential for the Christian life. They're essential for spiritual growth. We learn some of the greatest lessons that, lessons that God would teach us in trials. Listen to this G. Campbell Morgan quote. All through history, people have been brought to ask, who is this, through storms in their life. God does His holy work through trials. Second reason. This story assures us of Jesus' sovereignty over the storm. He is sovereign over the storm. No storm can change the plans of Jesus. No storm in your life can ultimately change the plans of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the storm. He's the sovereign one of all creation. Thirdly, this story assures us of Jesus' love and His presence in the midst of storms. No matter what the circumstance in your life, Jesus Christ is all you will ever need. No matter your circumstance, He is enough, and to be with the Lord is enough. Listen to Matthew 28. This is a promise. Let it hit, it, hit you fresh this morning. Matthew 28. The one with all authority is with you always, even to the end of the age. He's in the boat with us. The one with all authority is with us always, even into eternity. He's with us. This story also demands a response from the listener. How do we respond to this text this morning? It demands the response that we worship Jesus as the Lord of glory. You ought to feel a weight in your chest as the Holy Spirit just unveils Jesus in His majesty. As He, as he rules nature, as He makes it bow down and submit, you ought to feel this weightiness and this fear in your chest of who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. So our first response is worship. But this, this story also demands that we honor Jesus as Lord by putting our trust in Him. And this is the lesson that the disciples took away from that day. That they failed to trust. That they were fearful and they failed to trust Jesus. So think about this. The disciples had no right to wake Jesus that day. They were rebuked for doing this. The, the rebuke that Jesus gave them would have been a lifelong lesson. And, and, and it was real simple. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Christ. Real faith in Jesus is not just faith in past events. It's faith in a living Christ. It's also future-oriented. Okay, Just take Jesus at His Word. That's what this text calls us to this morning. So, I know this for myself, and I know this for many of you here, that at times we have all, pretty much all of us, has felt at one time or another that everything is going wrong and that God is asleep. Okay, You've probably hit a season of life like, life like this. One commentator says like this. He apparently, Jesus apparently sleeps in the hour of our anxiety. And then he says, therefore, it takes great faith to trust a sleeping Christ. Okay? 
So in your life, when you cannot see the hand of God, when you don't understand how things are fitting together, does fear mark those moments? Does fear mark those seasons? Or does faith, does trust mark those seasons in your life? So the lesson is don't panic. Trust Jesus. Take God at His Word. God has promised in His Word that He is always with His people. Always with His people. G. Campbell Morgan says this, The proportion to which we know Him is the proportion to which we will trust Him. This is why the question, who is this, is so critical. And I agree with that. The disciples didn't trust Jesus because they didn't realize who Jesus was in the boat with them that day. And in the same way, we can fail to put our trust in Jesus because we can fail to recognize the authority and the power of the Christ that's with us always, even to the end of the age. So, put your trust in Jesus. You need a reminder that fear and unbelief are offensive to Christ. He's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be honored as Lord by putting our trust in Him. Here's our last thought this morning. So take a little bit of time. Never doubt the love of Jesus. This story proves that Jesus cares for us. That's a takeaway that we can get from this story. But we have a far greater assurance than this story about this Galilean storm that Jesus loves us. This entire Gospel of Mark is moving towards an end. The end of the book. Okay, So there are things happening and this story has a conclusion. And at the end of this book, Jesus Christ gives His life for sinners on a bloody cross. We have a far greater assurance of the love of God for us than the story of the Galilean storm. This is good. Many scholars believe that this gospel, that the gospel writers, when they're writing this story, use Jonah chapter 1 as a backdrop to what's going on in this storm on the Sea of Galilee. Why do they think that? Why would Jonah chapter 1 be anywhere in their minds? Listen to this. This is good. Okay. Jonah chapter 1 and Mark chapter 4. Both stories are about a boat on water. So, hey, you got to do better than that. Okay. In both stories, a sudden storm arises. In both stories, the crew is panicking for their lives. In both stories, Jesus and Jonah are sleeping through the storm. In both stories, they are awakened. In both stories, the storm is supernaturally calmed. And in both stories, the crew is more afraid after the storm is calmed than during the storm. There we go. Jonah chapter 1. Who would have thought? Okay, so think about this. Jonah chapter 1. The fact that these stories are linked should not surprise you. In Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus announces Himself as the greater than Jonah. In the same chapter, Jesus tells us that the sign of Jonah will be given. And Tim Keller wisely points out that the only difference between the story of Jonah and the, and the storm and the story of Jesus is that Jonah is cast into the storm and Jesus is not. And then Tim Keller says, or is he? And then, think about this. Let this story in Mark chapter 4 be like a gospel shadow to you. Okay? Let, it think you, let, let Mark chapter 4 cause you to think about the end of the book. A gospel shadow. Let this be a reminder to you that Jesus did not ultimately, chiefly, or mainly come to steal the megastorm on this day in Galilee. Jesus 
ultimately, chiefly, and mainly came to steal the storm of God's wrath. And that storm was not calmed until it swept the Savior away, just like Jonah. He's the true and better Jonah. Tim Keller says, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who, ca- who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the true and better Jonah. In our text today, Jesus shuts down a megastorm with a word. Think of what He could have done at the cross. At any moment, He could have removed Himself from the cross and demolished and destroyed sinful humanity. Do you understand that? But He didn't. He voluntarily lays down His life. He voluntarily gives Himself up for sinners. Behold the great love of Jesus Christ. He's the true and better Jonah. Here's the final quote. Unless we are anchored in His love, when the storms come, we will doubt His love. If the sight of Jesus bowing His head into the ultimate storm is burned in your soul, you will never say to God, God, you don't care about me. If Jesus didn't abandon you in the ultimate storm, He will certainly not abandon you in the smaller storms. And let us remember that someday He will come again and steal all storms for eternity. Behold Jesus, the Lord of the storm. And I say amen to that. May these truths about Jesus bring peace deep into your soul as you pass through every storm in your life. He is with us always, even to the end of the age, and He has all authority. I'm going to read one passage as we close, and I think this text in Psalm 107 just sums this up really well for us. So I'm going to read that, and I'm going to pray for us. Psalm 107, verse 25 through verse 32. Listen to the parallels here. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wonderful works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the peoples and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You today, God, and we just want to ask You again, Lord, that You would use Your Word in our lives to bring about Christ-likeness, to bring about all the holy affections that we ought to have for You, Lord. We pray, God, that You would use this text today and this Word, Lord, as a seed that would produce godliness in our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to be proclaimers of this Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures, the One who's mighty in power, the One who makes nature bow down. God, help us to see You in all Your exaltedness, Lord. God, I pray that You would protect this church's Uh, knowledge of Christ, their vision of Christ, Lord. And we pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would grow more and more in the knowledge of You, Lord. And we ask this in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.